Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, um, thank you all for joining us in this episode of Compounding Conundrums, where we sit down with sterile compounding experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. This is the second of a three-part series that is being produced by members of the ASHP section of Inpatient Care Practitioners Advisory Group on Compounding Practice. My name is Jim Lund. I'm the immediate past chair of the SAG on Compounding Practice, and I'm currently a senior director in the Hospital and Health System Division at VSAT Consulting. Again, I'm fortunate to be joined by three wonderful colleagues, some that have some aspect of compounding operations throughout the country and are also members of the section advisory group. Again, joining me today is Kevin Hansen, who is the director of 503B programs at Premier, Terry Larilla, who is the home care pharmacy manager at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and Kaylee Thompson, who is the operations manager at Arkansas Children's Northwest in Springdale, Arkansas. So thank you all for joining me again in the second part of our podcast series. In our previous podcast discussion, we said we wanted to start with the very basics, and we covered the basic definition of compounding and some of the details around what qualifies compounding practices under Section 503A or 503B of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. I thought this was a great discussion last episode, and it really set the stage for some ongoing discussion around some recent updates in the compounding world that we wanted to start to touch on in these future podcast episodes. So today I wanted to discuss some detail around beyond use dating or BUD, how we assign them and how they apply to various types of products in our compounding practice. So hoping today we will outline the application of BUDs to products, starting with the simplest examples and then increasing complexity throughout our discussion. So let's start with definitions. Kevin, you let us off with definitions in the last episode, so I'm going to pick on you again here at the start. But could you break down the relevant definitions that relate to beyond use date and expiration date for us? Sounds good. Thank you so much, Jim. So really getting into these definitions, I think will be great to start this conversation. And so we have terms that we use such as expiration date, beyond use date, infusion time, hang time, in use time, discard time. <laughs> and so it'll be good to start with understanding the application of each of these and who is assigning it. So let's start with the expiration date. Expiration dates are assigned to conventionally manufactured products, APIs, added substances. And these are generally assigned by the manufacturer and are based on extensive analytical and performance testing, usually with validated methods following you know, CGMP. So that's really important as we think about expiration date. Let's think about those conventionally manufactured products as far as that time of use for storage before it can be, be used there. Now, when we think about beyond use date, we obviously see the definition about applying to compounds and having it being assigned by the pharmacy or whoever's compounding these compounded sterile preparations in the case of USB 797. And is that time that it must not be used, stored, or transported it is determined from the date and the time that preparation is compounded. So that will be really important for compounders is to lean in to that definition of beyond use date. Now, as we talked about some of these other definitions is also to understand the scope of the standards that we have. So USP 797, for example, is a standard on what? It's a standard on compounding. And so once administration begins, let's say, of a compounded sterile preparation, the scope of the chapter ends. So I think it's important context as we start thinking about our infusion time and hang time, because that is beyond the scope of the chapter. So this is generally assigned 
by our nursing colleagues for compounded cell preparations that are used within healthcare settings. And we can get guidance on this from Infusion Nurse Society, the CDC, for example, and there's some other organizations that can give some guidance about this. But essentially is that time, that allowable length of time for an infusion to be used before it must be taken down or exchanged. And so we think about, of course, sterility factors, you know, from exchanging and taking out lines and spiking those fluids is really that last aseptic mixture or manipulation of that bag. We do have to factor in the stability of those components as well. So on the pharmacies then, as we can do a lot and consider when we assign a beyond use status to factor in, well, what's the length of time that this therapy is going to be used? And you know, do we have stability concerns for this preparation that we need to factor in to that beyond use state or maybe the dispensing strategy? Maybe not dispensing multiple days at a time worth, but you know, creating a smaller allopot. And the last bucket of terms is this in-use time or maybe this discard time. So you'll see that this term is not used in the revised USP 797 at all. However, it is still used a lot in approved labeling that you'll see within FDA package inserts for these conventionally manufactured products. Many do still call this beyond use state. It is appropriate. However, the one thing to think about is that the use is different, right? Generally, we think about beyond use state, the use is the start of administration. When we talk about in-use time or discard time, we're talking about a conventionally manufactured product that we're accessing that container closure system that contains that sterile drug product or maybe reconstitution, right? And that timer starts about when you need to use the contents of that container and that use is for compounding a compounded sterile preparation and should not be used to limit the beyond use state of whatever that final preparation is. So that's really the main definitions that I think will set the context for the rest of this conversation. So I'll yield it back to you, Jim. Great. Thank you, Kevin. As always, helpful to kind of review the definitions right off the bat here. And, and some things, you know, seem so simple, but yet as you start to compare them all, could make it a little bit more complicated. So hopefully as we walk through this, some of this will be become more clear. As I mentioned earlier, we'll we'll kind of start with maybe the simplest examples of products and how BUDs are applied. We'll we'll increase in complexity. I'll quickly here just go through the simplest scenarios, and we'll start maybe with source products or conventionally manufactured products. A quick review here, single-dose vials are probably the simplest example. So for single-dose vials, hopefully we're all familiar. They must be punctured in an ISO 5 or cleaner air environment. And if doing so, they're able to be used up to 12 hours as long as the required storage conditions are met. And that's a change from the 2008 or the currently enforceable version of chapter USP 797, where that timeline is a six-hour BUD. Similarly, we have single-dose ampules, but we will think of these very differently. So single-dose ampules, once you you know crack the neck of that ampule per se, those products, there's no longer storage time allowed once that initial entry point is made. If we go a little bit more complex, we get into multi-dose vials. So these are our vials formulated for removal of portions of contents on multiple occasions. They contain antimicrobial preservatives to allow for that. And these can be used for 28 days unless otherwise stated by the manufacturer. And then lastly, from a source container perspective, we have pharmacy bulk packages. And these are containers of sterile products used for parental use that contain multiple single doses, but they're not intended for direct infusion. They must be entered or punctured, again, only in an ISO 5 air environment. It's not permissible to use these outside of that ISO 5 environment. 
and they must be used according to the manufacturer's labeling. So some examples of, of these, commonly there's some antibiotics out there. I think Vanco, Naphacillin, they all come in a container that's labeled as a PVP or bulk package. Many folks are probably familiar with like a 10 gram Vanco vial as an example that's labeled as a PVP. It's manufacturing labeling indicates that the contents of the vial after reconstitution should be removed within four hours, for example. So most of this is not new information. As mentioned previously, the one big change in the revised chapter 797 is the extension for single dose vials going from six hours to 12 hours in that ISO 5 air condition. The standards for multi-dose vials and pharmacy bulk packages remain the same with the new chapter. So as mentioned, one of uh, the key provisions of using single dose vials for 12 hours or using pharmacy bulk packages for longer durations, as indicated by the manufacturing labeling, is the expiration that these products or the expectation that these products are punctured and maintained within ISO 5 air conditions. However, if those conditions are not met and products are punctured outside of the ISO 5 environment, we venture into the immediate use provision outlined at 797. We'll talk about that in a moment here. But lastly, one common question I think we often hear, particularly in the SAG, I think we see this coming through some of the connect boards as well as we hear questions around removing the single dose vial from that ISO 5 environment. And I think in the old chapter, there were a lot of questions around whether this was clear or not. In the revised chapter 797, you're now allowed to remove products from the ISO 5 environment or from your primary engineering control. And you can maintain that 12-hour BUD as long as you store the product according to the manufacturer's approved labeling. So for example, if you have a refrigerated single dose vial that you puncture on the ISO 5 primary engineering control, you can remove it from the ISO 5 environment and keep it within the refrigerated storage condition as approved by the label. And you can still tie that 12-hour BUD from the time it's initially punctured in the ISO 5 primary engineering control. But again, you must achieve those approved labeling storage conditions to continue using that 12-hour BUD. So Terry, could you perhaps walk us through, I mentioned the standards around immediate use CSPs. So again, if we start to get into the world where we're puncturing vials outside of the primary engineering control, could you outline for us what's changed from the 2008 chapter to the newly revised chapter as it applies to immediate use CSPs? Thank you, Jim. Immediate use CSPs applies to compounding of CSPs for direct and immediate administration. It is not subject to the requirements for category one, two, or three CSPs if certain criteria are met. First off, we need to ensure that aseptic techniques and processes are being used. And these are backed up by written policies and procedures, or SOPs. The process in place has to minimize the potential contamination from non-sterile surfaces, particulate matter, or biological fluids, as well as to prevent mix-ups with other manufactured products or other CSPs. What this means is to work in an area as clean as possible. Use disinfectants like alcohol swabs to clean sites or work trays. You may want to wear a mask to prevent contamination from breath particles. The compounding field should be organized to prevent errors in compounding. The second point, compounding personnel, either pharmacists, technicians, or nurses, need to be trained in the aseptic processes that they are doing and have a competency that validates that they can do it. The third point, the mixing, diluting, and preparation is grounded by evidence-based information. 
such as package insert or other stability or compatibility references. The fourth point, the immediate use product involves not more than three different sterile products. Five, single-dose containers are only used for one patient, and it is discard after CSP preparation is complete. Six, administration has to begin within four hours following the start of the preparation process. If administration is not started within four hours, then that preparation must be promptly, appropriately, and safely discarded. And finally, the seventh point, if immediate use product is not administered by the person who prepared it, then it must be labeled. Or, well, if the person that prepared it does not see the product being administered, then it must be labeled. By labeled, it means to have the names and amounts of the active ingredients, the names or initials of the person who made the preparation, as well as the exact four-hour time when administration has to begin. Excellent. Thank you, Terry. That was a great review. You mentioned not involving more than three different sterile products in that outline there. Can you tell us more about what the three different sterile products mean specifically, and then how does that compare to the previous immediate use standards? Thank you for that clarifying question. Previously, the immediate use companying process included language like containers, needle sticks into the containers, and the products could not be hazardous. Notice that the change to three different sterile products. In home care, because stability, infliximab is a home mix by a nurse. They reconstitute, let's say, six vials of infliximab 100 milligrams and withdraw that and add to a bag of saline. So that would be six times two plus one for 13 containers, but it's really just three sterile products. Interesting. So how would the change from a one-hour limit to four hours apply in a situation like this? So let's say that that nurse in the home started an IV and then reconstituted and prepared the infliximab. By the time they went to administer the IV, that IV access could have lost patency. Before, we would only have one-hour window to get that infliximab started. Now we have four hours. And if needed, we can call another nurse to get another IV placed and that infliximab infused. Now, that being said, even though the beyond use time is four hours, that does not mean that the four-hour limit has to be used. Think about the standardized processes that have been put in place for nursing or anesthesiologists or in the OR or even how home infusion patients have been taught to add like multivitamins to a TPN when setting up with the TPN and pump for administration. Just because you can does not mean that you have to push the limit. Interesting. Thanks, Terry, for outlining that for us. Let's shift back to products compounded within the pharmacy. We covered the use of conventionally manufactured products and how to assign BUDs to these source products, vials, ampules, PVPs. I think it's also common practice for a pharmacy to create a stock solution or perhaps a bulk bag or bulk vial of a special dilution to be used as a source for compounding other sterile products in the future. Kaylee, maybe I'll ask you to jump in here. Could you outline what the 797 standards say about this scenario for us? Sure. Thank you, Jim, for the opportunity to discuss this topic. A compounded stock solution is a compounded sterile preparation utilized to prepare other CSPs and is pretty commonplace in facilities that compound for neonate and pediatric populations. 
This process typically involves combining sometimes multiple single-dose vials of a conventionally manufactured product to make a compounded stock bag, sometimes of very large volumes. This process does decrease turnaround time for patient-specific doses and decreases the number of dilutions that have to be made. Making a dilution for each patient-specific dose would lead to increased drug waste, wasted time, and significantly more manipulations per dose. Stock solutions are not addressed in the current enforceable version of USP-797. However, in Section 16 of the updated USP guidance, there is some information on the use of CSPs as components to prepare final CSPs. Thank you, Kaylee, for that explanation and that background. And what kind of guidance for Beyond Use Stadium does the updated version provide for compounders using these stock solutions? So when a CSP is used as a component, we have to be very careful to minimize the risk of contamination of both the starting component CSP as well as the final CSP. The component CSP that we're using to make a final CSP must be assigned a BUD that is consistent with Section 14 and must be stored under conditions for its assigned BUD when not in use. When a compounded single-dose CSP and a CSP stock solution is used as a component to compound additional CSPs, the original component CSP is treated as a conventionally manufactured single-dose container as long as it is punctured or entered into in an ISO class 5 or cleaner air and stored under the conditions which its BUD is based. So for this, and as we've previously discussed, this would typically be 12 hours or shorter, depending on stability. Now, if a component CSP meets the criteria for a multiple-dose CSP, then different BUDs actually can be applied. Most facilities are probably unlikely to be compounding multiple-dose CSPs, as these usually contain a preservative, meet the criteria for antimicrobial effectiveness testing, and must be tested and conform to container closure integrity test. However, if there is a facility that is utilizing a component CSP that they have jumped through these hoops and are able to use it as a multi-dose CSP, then it would be assigned a 28-day BUD or potentially shorter. Thanks, Kaylee, for that distinction. A question I think that commonly comes up is, how does this impact the BUD of the final CSP product? Does the updated USP-797 version provide guidance on this? It does, actually. So per the revised USP guidance, the time limit for entering or puncturing of the component CSP, provided the stock solution was stored under appropriate conditions and entered in ISO 5 or cleaner air, it is not intended to restrict the BUD of the final CSP. So let's look at an example. A hospital compounds a ceftriaxone 40 milligram per mil, 1,000 mil bag from conventionally manufactured products to use as a stock solution in a clean room suite and assigns that stock bag a 10-day BUD at refrigerated temperature. That ceftriaxone stock bag is then punctured 48 hours later and labeled with an appropriate 12-hour BUD once punctured. Final CSPs made from the stock CSP may be assigned a BUD of what's remaining on the original 10-day BUD from the CSP stock. And for our example here, we could technically say it would have eight additional days. Now, there is some discussion about whether this would be considered best practice 
as the compounded CSP is stored for an interim period of time, then accessed again, further increasing the risk of microbial contamination. For the guidelines, though, this would be allowed. I do believe this leaves open some discussion within facilities to write policies that would be best for their site. An additional point to consider when we're talking about storage times would be to evaluate the volume of stock solution prepared. USP does not provide guidance on this particular issue. However, many valid concerns are raised if a compounder is making, say, a 3,000 mil stock bag and accessing that bag 75 to 100 times over the next 12 hours for patient-specific doses. The alternative approach would really be to consider multiple smaller stock solution bags or vials to decrease that risk of contamination. Interesting. Thank you, Kaylee. That's a great example and certainly leaves us a lot to think about and a lot to consider. So thank you for covering those considerations. Excellent points made by everybody and and want to thank the group here for the great discussion today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Kevin, Terry, and Kaylee for joining us again and to review the establishment of BUDs and how these apply to current practice. This was a great second discussion. I'm looking forward to continuing our Compounding Conundrum podcast going forward. In our next podcast, we're going to focus a little bit more and review the new category one, two, and three classifications and what they mean for practice. So definitely looking forward to getting together again for that discussion. I also want to thank our audience for joining us today. If you haven't before, I would encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources, including the newly updated Compounding Resource Center that we're all very excited about. ASHP also has a new Connect Community on Compounding, which is an online forum where members are encouraged to ask and answer questions related to sterile and non-sterile compounding as well as hazardous drug safety. This has been a very active Connect community and and something I would encourage everybody to check out. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Hot Topics of Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.